Jesus said, beware of practicing your piety before others in order to be seen by them. For then you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you to be here in this place with us this evening. And we trust that you have kept your promise and are here with us. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Who are you? Who are you? What was once a simple question answered by simply giving your name has become, I think, the chief question of our time. Who are you? People are fighting, perhaps as they have never fought before, for the exclusive right to answer that question on their own terms. Who are you? And as it turns out, the world has a lot of identities on offer. We have gender identities. Are you a man or a woman? Who are you? We have racial identities. Are you black, white, Hispanic? Who are you? We have sexual identities. Are you straight or gay? Who are you? The term intersectionality, which has gained prominence in the last 40 years or so, is the idea that you sort of are the sum of your social and political identities. You might be a short Asian woman or a tall black man, but there are more identities than that, aren't there? Height, race, and gender are only three. We must include sex and class, religion, disability or ability, physical appearance, and on and on and on. Who are you? But even with all that, all those identities, we're not nearly done defining ourselves yet. Sometimes we additionally try to answer the who are you question with a catalog of our greatest successes. Maybe you're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, or maybe your last name means something in the town where you live. You add those things to your social and political identities, and you have a compelling answer when someone asks you who you are. A short Asian man who is one of the most respected tax attorneys in the Midwest. That could be who you are. But it can also be alluring, counterintuitively, I think, to identify ourselves by our greatest struggles. Maybe the color of your skin, or the fact that you grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, or the kind of accent you have mean that people have traditionally thought less of you. Add those things to your social and political identities. And again, you have a powerful answer when someone asks you who you are. A tall, white woman from a tough neighborhood who didn't have any of the advantages that the rest of you enjoyed. That's who you are. But then you come to a church on an Ash Wednesday. And you let a minister make an ashen cross on your forehead, and he answers the who are you question for you. He says, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What is that? What is going on here? Well, here it is. Tonight, 
We come to worship laying down our supposed right to define ourselves. We acknowledge, in fact, that we never had that right. We set aside our successes and our struggles. We lay down our socio-political location and we let God tell us who we are. That's what's happening tonight. The ashes, of course, are optional, but let me encourage you. Let a minister, let me, make an ashen cross on your forehead tonight. And whether or not you get ashes, let Almighty God tell you who you are. At first, this might seem oppressive. Someone else, a deity I've never seen and maybe don't even believe in, is going to tell me who I am? How dare you even suggest such a thing? But let me suggest to you this evening that not having to define yourself is great and comforting good news. There is nothing more exhausting and ultimately nothing more sure to end in death than the attempt to self-create. Who are you? Ash Wednesday answers that question. Into all of these identities, the social and political identities, as well as our successful identities and our struggling identities, into these identities, God comes to say that we do not get to decide who we are and we do not have to decide who we are. In fact, God tells us he decides who we are. Now, before I tell you who God says that you are, let's address just briefly these identities that the world tries to seduce us into creating for ourselves. And as we do that, we're going to let St. Paul, Jesus' great interpreter and author of two-thirds of the New Testament, confront those identities with God's word, the actual announcement of the truth from Almighty God. We're going to take them one by one. Identity in terms of successes, identity in terms of struggles, and then identity by socio-political location. First, we are tempted, all of us, to identify ourselves by our successes. You're somebody who went to that college, or who drives that car, or who married that girl or that guy. You're someone people look up to, someone people trust. You're someone that other people want to be. That's who you are. Well, St. Paul says, oh, really? You think you've got something to brag about? Paul puts his list of accomplishments up against anybody's in Philippians chapter 3. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. I have the most successes, says St. Paul. And yet, does Paul allow his successes to define him? No, indeed. But whatever gain I had, he continues, I count as loss 
for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And here's the key phrase and be found in him. Who is Paul? He is nothing, he says, other than someone who is found in Christ. Second, we are tempted to identify ourselves by our struggles. You're from a place at which other people look down. You've had to fight for every inch you've gained. No one ever gave you anything for free. In fact, they oppressed you and maybe your ancestors too. That's who you are. Well, Paul might think he has you beat in terms of suffering too, successes and suffering. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, says St. Paul, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And of course, Paul is a man who is beaten shipwrecked, imprisoned on multiple occasions, and ultimately killed. Now, Paul's thorn is a great mystery. But here's the thing about the thorn. Paul mentions it here and never talks about it again. And he must have pretty much never talked about it to anybody, because as far as I can tell, there's not even really any church tradition that's grown up around what the thorn might be. No one knows what Paul here begs God to relieve him of, because Paul refused to be defined by it. He would not allow his greatest suffering to become his identity. No, indeed. Listen to him in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, says Paul, sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who is Paul? He is nothing, he says, other than a man who cannot be separated from the love of Christ. So, Paul refuses to be defined by his greatest successes, and he refuses to be defined by his greatest struggle. But what about his sociopolitical location? He got into that a little bit, didn't he, back in Philippians 3, talking about how perfectly Jewish he is, right? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. How might he respond to our 
intersectional approach to self-definition, man or woman, white or black, gay or straight, rich or poor, etc., etc., on into infinity. But Paul refuses such definitions too. Listen to him in Galatians 3. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The good news of Jesus Christ is a universal leveler. Your ethnic, socioeconomic, or gender identities, any of your particular identities are all covered over, made invisible by the covering and saving blood of Jesus Christ. Who is Paul? He is nothing, he says, except that he is one with you, believer, no matter who you are, in Christ Jesus. And so we come to Ash Wednesday and the audacious claim of Christianity that Almighty God himself defines you. That the God who created the day and the night and the seasons of the year reserves the right to tell you who you are. To the one who would create himself, this is bad news. This is the worst news. You are not your maker. You don't get to decide. No wonder the world tears its clothes and gnashes its teeth. The allegedly self-made man hates this. But here's the truth. Self-made people are doomed to die. There is good news. Almighty God offers you new creation, new life in Christ and life eternally. God promises to make you new That's the good news. You don't have to make yourself. You are not the sum of your successes or the sum of your struggles. You are not the pile of sociopolitical intersections that the world has deemed for you. You are in Christ. You are made new. Remember the three ways that Paul defined himself. Found in Christ unable to be separated from the love of Christ, and one, together with every other believer, in Christ. That's who you are. In Christ. A beloved child of God. You were dead in self-creation. Ashes to ashes. Dust to dust. But now you are alive. Who are you? You were dead in trespasses and sins. Know that as I make a streak of ash on your forehead. Remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. We're not here to practice our piety. We're here to acknowledge that we are dead. Who are you? You are alive in Christ Jesus. Know that 
as you come to the table to eat and drink his body and blood broken and shed for you, giving you new life. We're not here to practice our piety. We're here to celebrate our resurrection. We don't identify ourselves by anything other than the identical ashen crosses on our foreheads and the identically undeserved saving death and resurrection of Christ that has been credited to us. We are equally dead in trespasses and sins and equally alive in Christ's righteousness. That is who we are. That is who you are. And that is good news for sinners. New life created by God for you. Tonight, right now, God says, I have called you by name. You are mine. That is who you are. Thanks be to God. Amen.